We're going to see um, how to blow up a pipeline at 5.30. Was it good? I don't think so. No? Okay. Uh, yeah, I saw it on Tuesday at like the, the big press screening at Brooklyn Grange. I was pretty impressed by the you know amount of people like me that they brought together. There was like you know, maybe 200 influencer type people podcaster, mm. blogger type people and activists too, like 200 Andes, you know, different, different species of uh, that kind of person of which there were many Andes. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, we saw our friends, neoliberal hell there and mm. uh, Cine Mobile was there, which is like sort of anarchist film screening group that wrote a now notoriously negative review of the film. Oh, shit. Uh, let's Shouldn't go on them, Twitter. Man. That was a mistake. Well, I mean, like for PR people, like any press is good press. And it's, this is, I think, was especially good for the film because it was like such a kind of um, anarchisty negative review that uh, a lot of people are making fun of it as okay. a, a means of supporting the film. So, like, um, But I also saw a, a friend of mine there who is like an anti-pipeline activist. And so I, I went up to her and I was like, oh, it's it's impressive that they got you here. And she's like, oh, yeah, I snuck in because my friends were going. I told them <laughs> I was an actor in the film and they just let me in. But that said, I don't have a review of the movie because there was an open bar beforehand. Oh, okay. to really, and was, my impression is that it was a bad movie. But um, I feel like I, it's not really fair for me to say that, having watched it in the, the state that I did. Yeah, fair enough. Well, we're going to see it tonight. Cool. Nice so we, thing. yeah, you can, yeah, try to, you know, try to pay attention. And, I don't know. know if I'm going to do that. <laughs> I, I brought a bunch of edibles with me. <laughs> Paying attention might be a little too. Well, my experience with taking edibles to see a movie is that if it is a good movie you will get sucked into it. It's true. Um, and if the movie sucks, you're going to be like, your mind's going to be wandering. You'll be like, oh, I wish I was, you know, playing a video game right now. You'll be thinking about other stuff in your life. It's a real bellwether. Right. Whether you get high and it sucks right, you Right, right. Remember so, you and me went to um, Apocalypse the Big now. Theater, Apocalypse Yeah, now, that was really... saw the extended version. That was sick. I was pretty high at that. I don't know about you. I was fucking lit. Yeah, that's a... That is an intense movie to be high for, but... And a long movie to yeah, be high like for. Yeah, like you feel like you're in Vietnam, you mm. know? And um, that was the that was the day that I looked over and we were both pretty high. It was like halfway through, like a four and a half hour movie, and you had your little notebook with you, and you were like writing notes in it. And that was the day I decided to get my own notebook. Yeah, yeah. I said that's really useful because you have all these thoughts. You know, you're like thinking about all these things. You especially come when up you're with stoned when you're high as shit. And then you just let them go like so many tears in the rain. And I said to myself, I can't do this anymore. Right. I got to start. That's content up there. You need that's, that. It's all content, <laughs> yeah. baby. It's all content all the time. I love that that's like how brain function, what it means now is like, ooh, content. Yeah. <laughs> I, had a, I had a revelation. There's some content. Not just us, but for Yeah, everybody. yeah. I mean, maybe like coders are like writing code while they're watching how to blow up a pipeline or whatever. Yeah, that's cool. Write some hacking code to blow up the pipeline. Blow up the bike mine. How to blow up the bike mine. I'm almost done eating, I promise. <laughs> One trip. It is pretty cool. I went to Alamo last night, and I saw 1001, and they had um, the How to Blow Up a Pipeline poster uh, like in their sort of display of current films, but it was just the cover of the book. I don't know if that was a mistake or if they're using mm. the cover of the book as the film poster, but as a result, just like that, you know, the the cover of the... Uh, Swedish Leninist uh, <laughs> manifesto by Andreas Malm is yeah. now in theaters across the country. Hey, that's great. I tell you, everybody should read Malm. Me and Varn, did you listen to the episode I did with Varn on yeah, of uh, Fossil Capital? Mm -hmm. That was really, 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 really good book. But right I think I mind. agree with uh, uh, Rio Franco, so I think it's her name, her critique of the book, that it's like, yeah, like sabotage can only get you so far. There needs to be, you know, mass movement. To yeah. really change anything. I picked up that book, but I haven't read it yet. Neither have I. So yeah, can't again. Haven't seen again, the movie. Haven't, haven't read the book. The can't really have strong opinions Not on either of them. Fodder for the podcast. Didn't even read that. Uh, the entirety of that review either. <laughs> Just <laughs> well, it's all right, man. It's that. It's it's those kind of days right now. I'm getting off of um, what nine days now since I got COVID, mm. and I uh, I certainly feel better than I did like uh, four, five, six days ago. But there's like, uh, you know, that dragging feeling that you yeah. have for a while. 
I've I've been negative for two or three days at this point, but just even walking over here, I'm kind of like, Bleh. If but you have to take a little nap during the show, I'll just uh, drone on about something. Yeah, you won't even miss me. I'll man. just put on the Mets game. And right. That's what you were doing when together. I got here. So, I mean, really, <laughs> I feel like I'm interrupting your Mets game right now. Who are they playing? The Marlins. Oh, boo. Boo, Florida. All right, let's get into the show. What do you What do you have to talk about today, Sean? Oh, well, you know, it's been, uh, what, several weeks since we've had a good old-fashioned news episode. So I figure we maybe check in with the world. Um, There's uh, plenty of things happening out there. There's uh, the civil wars in France right now that Mm -hmm. are happening against the tyrant Macron. Not as cool as the civil war in France of 1871, but pretty cool nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, everything in France kind of has shades of 1871, um, whether whether the ruling class likes it or not. It's pretty cool, the, just the aesthetics of what happens over there. I mean, there's a real reason why, um, you know, Americans have a very particular view of what the French are. And it comes from, um, yeah, this like sporadic intensity of the class struggle that they throw up every once in a while. Certainly the uh, defense of their social goods right now. Is popping off. How many they're on day like thirteen or fourteen of um of mass protests against Macron's pension law? Well, I it seems like there was regular mass protests in March, and now they're sort of tapering down to like only on Thursdays. Well, that's that's a problem, right? Yeah. So last Thursday, like a, a lot of the articles that I read for this and linked in the show notes were written in late March and are like now just translated they're all pretty much saying like things are intense right now there's a date of action called for april 6th Mm -hmm. but that might be too late already so it seems like things are winding down yeah i mean certainly the politics of it is um you know is was there a chance that macron was going to back down if you just had sort of like called one day general strikes and it was only particular sectors of the economy and it was like the sanitation workers weren't picking up the trash and there were big manifestations in Paris and other cities like on Thursdays or whatever. Was Macron going to back down? I mean, I think that was always an open question. doesn't seem like he is. If he had the gumption to use that constitutional um, executive order to override uh, a parliament that wouldn't vote for raising the pension age for people, was he going to back down with like a quote unquote ordinary street protest movement? I mean, I don't know. It was interesting reading these articles. There, what I read was "Letter from Paris" by Charles Reeves, translated mm-hmm. by Paul Maddock, mm-hmm. and I read the Jacobin article by Hugo Paletta, mm-hmm. who is, uh, you know, one of the you know, on the executive committee of the Fourth International. Oh hell yeah, one of your fellow travelers, one of my friends. Yeah, and I read the Crime Think article as well, mm-hmm. and so it was a good like spectrum of. Oh, and the sidecar piece from uh, New Left Review. Yeah. So that's like a pretty good spectrum of the sort of revolutionary left's takes on it. And Mm -hmm. you get like the the sort of ultra left takes, which are like revolution could be imminent. The proletariat as a whole is being radicalized. You know, the Robin Hoods are reducing energy costs for everybody. You know, the, the kind paving of stuff, stones are or the beach is under the paving stones. We the just kind of stuff like, that we yeah. like or at least want to like. Yeah. And then the the Trotskyist Jacobin piece is like, let's take a more serious look at yeah. the potentials for revolution. And basically they argue that the strikes are much smaller than people are making them out to be. They're almost entirely the public sector. Mm-hmm. They haven't really hit social reproduction in the way some of these other pieces are making it out to be. Like some industries are closed, but most industries are open. The working class in general in France is extremely precarious. Mm-hmm. And it's not hitting the youth movements or like the youth movements aren't mobilized or don't exist like they used to. So the way he describes it is that there are these more state sector industries that are mobilized with the support of some militant groups. Mm, Hustlers. Yeah. And it's really not pushing in the direction of like mass social change or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, what was the the yellow vest, which is now what, five, six years on or so? It was like a militant minority. It was one that was uncontrolled by like the typical sectors of social struggle, which is to say like the trade union confederations and what's left of the parties of the left. Um, This is also seems like a militant minority within 
like a minority fraction of the class, as you said, which is organized in the main trade union confederations, which the trade union confederations have been interfacing with the Insume movement of uh, Melanchon. And uh, there seems to be a sort of like a virtuous cycle there of like who the 78 members of parliament who are in this far left party are like, you know, interacting and calling people out to the streets with their political platform. Then you have the unions bringing the workers in. But it remains like a minoritarian union uh, movement, unlike something you saw in, say, even 1995, the last time there was an attempt at like a massive pension and labor overhaul where you saw like six and a half million workers going on strike at once, a struggle that lasted for weeks and months where basically like large portions of the French economy was shut down. Capital was directly uh, confronted and uh, made to stop. And um, you're just not seeing it on the scale of that. It's something is certainly happening. I mean, there is like a continuous sort of cycle of struggles that you can see going back to the financial crisis, of course. Um, and there's a obvious continuation with the yellow vests. What the more like poetically waxing sort of ultra um, literature seems to uh, argue for is that there's some sort of phase shift that's happened that Macron coming in as this neoliberal tyrant and using this constitutional mechanism in order to overthrow popular sovereignty, the fact that it seems as though large swaths, not just of the working class, but even like the middle strata and parts of capital. So the argument is that um, now that the government of uh, Mélenchon and by extension, the Fifth Republic has lost all legitimacy in the eyes of broadly like civil society in France, that now you only have the brute order of the police, you know, which is keeping this entire state apparatus as a going concern. Um, Certainly the police uh, and the forces of order have been extremely violent, it looks like. Uh, We know people, some of the people associated with angry workers uh, have been hurt in these massive protests and the police are just like brutally beating people and kettling people in the streets there in a way we haven't seen in a long time. The idea is that we're, we, the protests have reached like a moment where it has to go past its limitation and become revolutionary. I mean, I, we've been hearing that sort of language for, for years now at this point, right? I feel like maybe the more sober Trotskyist analysis might be the one I'm more sympathetic to at this point in time. There's a, I hate when they do that. To I us. know they do that so often. It's just so smart. I mean, listen to this. This is from the, uh, the new left review thing. And I think it shows, you know, what Americans want to think of like a pre-revolutionary situation and want to think of France. It's like in the space of a few decades and especially since 2017, an entire social model has been brought to its knees. They have brought the country to the knee to its knees, not the CGT, not the inter-syndical. They and they alone have done this. The country has been ruined by the competent. It is in a state of total disorganization. As we know, to oust the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie promoted university degrees and meritocratic symbols as replacements for blood and lineage. Hence a paradox within late capitalism. The incompetence of the bourgeoisie has itself become a historical force. You know, wow. it's like, it's, it's beautiful language. And I think that that last part's actually very true. And Pavlos pointed to that yeah, on yeah. Twitter. It's, it's a great line. It's a really, really great line, but like, it's only really in reference to France that like a, a state old publication, like the new left review could post something that looks like a fucking crime think article, <laughs> you know, like it's getting very insurrectionary in the sidecar sub piece. I mean, yeah, of I the, mean new left the, review. the new left reviews, you know, it's the new left. It still has that lineage. That's what yeah. crime think is part of the new left too, but this ain't Perry Anderson's new left review, <laughs> but like how many times, and you know, I don't know what's going on in France. Like we're just, I'm just reading these articles, but like how many times am I supposed to see, like uh you know uh road flares at a demonstration in france and be like ah this is it's the revolution happening. yeah it yeah. happens every year yeah and so yeah this one is i think wh- why people are rightfully excited about this is first of all it's like a huge counterbalance to you know the, the paralysis of the rest of the west yeah um second of all like you said the uh the 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 way it appears similar to gilet jean which was not a um, specifically working class movement. It was like sort of this populist insurrection, yeah. basically, that had a a really uh, like longer than most like labor unrest uh, spans. Um, w- way more destructive, including the formation of 
uh, popular committees all over the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. But, you know, pr- like generally, I think in retrospect, um, couldn't get too far away from the conservatism of petty bourgeois politics. Yeah. Um, although, you know, like leftists were a huge part of it and they were able to push it to an extent, especially away from like the outright xenophobia and racism that could have controlled that movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you're seeing like a class struggle moment in France that looks a little, that has some of the elements of that populist insurgency infused with like open black block type tactics. Yeah. But in some ways the rhetoric of the movement has been scaled back as a result. Mm. Like, for example, one thing that a couple of these articles emphasized is that Macron and the Macronies have become, like, the target mm-hmm. of the movement and not the system. Yeah, And as a result yeah. of that, the most concerning thing I read, and it seems to be pretty true from a couple of polls, is that people popularly think that the resistance to, to Macron and his reforms is Le Pen, mm-hmm. which is... It would be one thing if, like, Le Pen was out there at the protest saying, like, we're against these reforms, but her party's not. They're against the strikes, and also right. they, they have never said that they will roll the retirement age back at all. So yeah. while Melenchon yeah. is uh, virtually as popular as Le Pen at mm-hmm. this point, Le Pen is slightly more popular, and people think that Le Pen is the answer. Like, a huge percentage, maybe like half of this movement, thinks that Le Pen is is the answer. And... So it becomes this question of, of personalities, not unlike mm-hmm. in the United States, where, like, how do we fight the right? Um, I guess we have to lock up Trump. Right. Well, for all of, like, the the pathos, and you and me live through this, all the listeners who are American out there, and probably foreign listeners as well, too, all live through, uh, what was it, like, 2015, 2016, like, the shock victory of Donald Trump, um, like, the, the mass women's march afterwards, the sort of like chaos that unfolded when this, you know, bumbling, uh, arrogant fucking jerk off ended up in the presidency. And every day it was another fucking scandal. And he's there was like attempts to like do a Leninist overthrow, quote unquote, of like the administrative state. And you had verified like racist pieces of shit in his administration and circling it or whatever. We all remember those days, you know, and we all remember, I think, the rightful revulsion we had towards like this is what America has become. This is a very dangerous moment. This is a very, if not disturbed, then certainly like disturbing individual uh, that's now in power and like the greatest world power in human history. But we have to recognize, you know, in what, six years uh, retrospective that uh, anti-Trumpism was a fucking, we got played. Like we all got fucking played. It's not, it wasn't one thing to be like against Trump, which we all were, but the way that like Trump was used by the forces of order, you know, by the left wing of capital in order to corral people into a particular political position and in defense of like this liberal democracy, which is fucking choking us in defense of like the status quo and the norms of the of American constitutional order. It was used in order to push us, you know, in a particular direction. And it worked, I think, for several years. But what I'm getting at is, is something a little bit more than that, because it's not just, um, yeah, like the, the identification of of neoliberal austerity and like the neoliberal order with with singular individuals is is obviously wrong but then even like the next step after that which is like the identification of it with singular corporations is Mm. also wrong and so that's why it was a little bit disturbing to me to see this all this enthusiasm about like the cgt going into the blackrock offices Mm. like yeah blackrock is a part of this and it's a good it's a it's a good target going into their lobby for 20 minutes with flares is fine it's not particularly exciting you know that people were talking about it as if they were occupying the offices and ransacking the place, which yeah. they didn't do, as far no, as I know. I favorably <laughs> compared it to January 6th, okay? Because <laughs> okay. at least it had, like, a marginally better target, all right, than, yeah. like, the fucking hallowed halls of bullshit Congress. And but. the flares look cool, but it's not actually fire, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so just, but my, my, my point with bringing that up is that um, BlackRock is a target of the right and the left mm-hmm. because uh, the right thinks that the black, black, like Larry Fink of BlackRock, is behind the Davos party of of the global elite, cultural and, Marxism, ESG. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They, exactly. yeah. they think yeah. like BlackRock is this like Marxist vanguard, and so it's totally possible to target individual politicians and individual corporations still within the framework of liberalism or fascism. Yeah. And it's unclear to me that as as hated as these reforms are and as hated that Macron is, that the the struggle in France is breaking out of that. 
Yeah, no, I mean, fair enough. I think we've seen that the sort of like, that what could be hoped to be a sort of organic process where the like revulsion at a particular politician or the revulsion at a particular uh, fraction of capital or individual capitalist enterprise would sort of organically transmutate itself into a rejection and a politics against the state as such, you know, or capital as such. And we haven't seen that happen. What the argue, what the, the Trotskyist uh, article in uh, Jacobin argues is for a sort of dialectic process between what they call the social, which is happening out in the streets and with the trade unions and the youth movements or whatever on the one hand, and then uh, Mélenchon and Insume, um on the other hand as like the sort of political voice and arguing for that the back and forth between those things that like calling for manifestations and doing beautiful speeches did you see the melanchone speech where he talks about like about time yeah yeah time he's like a he's like a time abolition reformist the guy is like <laughs> no no he's he like want, communism no, he's is free time yeah. and nothing else he's like free, calling free for the, time. Ab- the abolition of abstract time and value and no, all. no he, he didn't go that free time is still time he free hasn't time. gone that far yet no you're but. right he hasn't read it read his debord <laughs> if yeah. only melanchon would read would read society of the spectacle and have yeah John. but you know he's bringing it back to like the eight-hour work week demand. You know, he's bringing yeah. it back to those kinds of policies. They don't have an eight-hour is... work week, though, or an eight-hour work day. They have 35 up. Right, eight-hour <laughs> work day, yeah. But I mean, the point is, like, it's it sounds sophisticated compared to all the crap that we have to deal with, all that rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, but it's nothing new. It just, yeah. It's, like, exciting that, you know, people are putting that kind of rhetoric it's exciting. Uh, it's exciting for us in the Anglophone world to see that like there's actual politicians that speak that language anymore. And Melanchon represents like what the like the long, um, the long slow demise of the Soissons Huitard. You know, like that '68 generation. You know, he's talking about time and he's talking about freedom and he's no, no, about worse living. than that. He represents the left wing of the Socialist Party that was that's been hollowed out. Yeah. So, so like France and Sume is like, yeah, it's like the left wing party and it's popular, but it's just the left of the Socialist Party, which is horrible. Yeah. But the right I, of the Socialist Party now went to Macron's party. Yeah. And then there's still like some remnants of like the center left. Yeah. But it's, it's not like this. Like France and Sume is not like are not like the Bolsheviks or the. Anarchy. No, no, like, no. That's not what they, I meant. Okay. That's, that's not what I meant at all. I meant the generation of revolution of 1968, which is continues to be this sort of cloud that haunts the ruling class you know that like looms over them at all times was how close um a pre-revolutionary situation came to actual revolution Uh and the the ways in which that combination of like student struggle uh and like mass general strike which lasts for weeks days and weeks uh in france the way that that brought de gaulle's government to its fucking knees uh, the fact that you were on really the precipice of like actual social revolution inspired um, Melanchon might be a little young for that, but like inspired a lot of what the left wing of the possible look like in France up until today. So what I'm saying is that there's like um, a similar sort of relationship between like that generation of the left in France um, and, you know, how they ended up, like, transmuting into, like, bourgeois politics or whatever, uh, which they did in many cases, and, say, like, Bernie Sanders in the United States, right? There's, like, this sort of, like, generational overlap there. Mm-hmm. And then you have a large disaffected youth and, like, young workers and immigrant workers um, all over France who are, like, disconnected from politics for all the reasons you talked about that like you have Melanchon also represents Mitterrand right because in Mitterrand in the 1980s as the president of the republic was this attempt to unite the socialists and the communist party together and to actually do like non-reformist reforms you know all sorts of like you know lowering the work week and like adding all sorts of social provisions and strengthening workers and whatever and it ran up against the brick wall of international capital with like massive capital strikes and Mitterrand actually was forced to retreat on that and became a sort of neoliberal mm-hmm. you know this these are the this is the sort of context of what has happened in France i i not that i'm a fucking expert no you know? you're right you're right i i was a uh... To hate, I just you know, I just don't like the enthusiasm for uh, Melanchon because oh, yeah. like it's just it just reminds me of like any time that there is a leftist leading in the poll somewhere in the world, people are yeah. like heartened by that. But like just 
just just as they are um they represent some of the like street fighting uh ethos and remnant of 68 they also represent the the ultimate collaboration for sure of, of that movement um in, into like some sort of uh you know new social welfare system well, and and they're defending that system of course good. it should be defended yeah. but that is like the ultimate victory of it and you mentioned uh Mitterrand and, and capital flight I mean, this is a really interesting dynamic of the of the moment in France um, after the pandemic when they now have some of the richest people in the world, including the richest person in the world, Bernard Arnault, who is uh, like the CEO of uh, what, like Hennessy and, uh, uh, you know, all these luxury brands. That cognac money, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the how he got so rich is that with this incredible, this vast uh, expansion of the wealth of like the one percent, they're just you know like now luxury commodities is what's making the big bucks. Yeah, sure. I which mean, is wh- which is a really crazy turn in like the last two or three years. And uh, just to wrap this point up, Arnaud is importantly saying like if you come for some of my billions now that I'm the richest man in the world, I'm just going to move to to Belgium. Right. And like, I'll do uh, it. I'll do it tomorrow. Like Gerard Depardieu. Remember the big scandal when that happened, when they were going to raise taxes on the millionaires and Gerard Depardieu, like this like archetypal French fucking masculine actor guy was like, fuck you. I'm going to Belgium. And they're like, Oh, if we lose Gerard Depardieu, we've lost uh-huh. the French people, you know? Yeah. Like what are you defending when you defend the French state? I mean, what you're defending is like a, so, the soft imperialism of West Africa for the last fucking 50 or 60 years, which is finally in decline. You're defending like the counterbalance, the capitalist counterbalance to capitalist Germany within the EU, uh, you know, a, a nuclear armed power that has like the ability to blow up large portions of the world. And of course, too, like as much as we like to imagine French as being France as being like the Paris of the left bank, um, par- you know, France is also. The fucking, um, like the peri urban proletariat of the yellow vests. It's also the fucking, um, proletariat of the suburbs that ring Paris and these big looming public housing projects where people have like almost no life chances whatsoever. Uh, lucky to live off the dole if they can. And when you're talking about France, you're talking about not just the left bank and the beautiful Seine and all the nice buildings and all the, you know, nice middle class bourgeois cafe culture. You're also talking about La Defense which is the big fucking financial district in Paris. These big giant cubes of glass that like loom over the entire country. France right now, like the big context of this is that France still has a very, very decent sized industrial economy. And we know that uh, at least over here because there was like a huge crisis over the last six months or so of trying to keep things like ceramics and uh, precision tools um running and produced with all the energy crisis they've had with the Ukrainian war or whatever. They still have a pretty decent industrial base. Um, And what's happening right now is as Germany, uh, the big, really the dominant power within the European Union for the last 20, 30 years or so since reunification, now that Germany seems to be in some sort of slow decline, France is now vying with Germany to be like the great power within this capitalist block of powers that is the European Union. They're also trying to, in a backdoor way, defend their imperial, uh, what's left of their imperial holdings in uh, West Africa right now against, you know, various mass movements and politicians who are trying to kick them out. So let's not glorify the French state. You know, let's not say that uh, Mélenchon being elected, for example, would like solve the social question whatsoever. But at least he is critical on those questions. But he's critical on these particular questions. And so, like, when you look, it, it seems to me that, like, never-ending social warfare in the streets doesn't seem to be sufficient to, like, overthrow the French state at this exactly. point. Exactly, yeah. And so that's that was my point in, like, the spectrum of articles. Because the Crime Think article, you know, it, it, first of all, it covers a lot of things that the other articles don't mention, like the the ecological struggles of the last few months and like how those have been brutally suppressed and how those play in with the the strikes as well. Um, but it also just has this rhetoric of like, um, the, this is a, this is a street struggle. This is not happening in the unions. It's not happening in the workplace. And I mean, like it, it has to happen in those places. Like the unions, uh, have to be transformed. Mm-hmm. 
um, the way people engage in work in general has to be tra- like there has to be like a social transformation. It can't just be like fighting the cops every Thursday mm-hmm. or every I, I don't know, like the I guess uh, Gilet Jean was doing it like every Saturday or something like it can't just be uh, like it has to break out of this the, the new left spontaneity, like um, set a date like or a summit or whatever. Uh, and no one really has the idea about how that happens yet. Yeah, I mean, they, it seems to me from reading these articles that people have the old idea, and the old idea was one that came out of uh, the revolutionary moment in May and June of 1968, which was that in a very real sense, uh, the Communist Party of France, the PCF, and what is the the U, the CFT, or the UG, the big communist trade unions, uh, they were the ones that ultimately put a break on the possibility of there being like a revolutionary rupture. You know, there was a moment when like all of France's industry, all of its business, all of its capital was shut down and there were calls to build workers' councils and there was calls to actually like do the fucking deed. You know, the thing was on mm-hmm. a cliff was just to fucking push it off and see what happens. Uh, let De Gaulle go to the fucking wolves. And who were the social forces out there of containment and of order? It was the Communist Party and it was the train u- uh, the, the inter-syndicates, uh, the trade unions. So that is like another specter that kind of haunts, uh, it seems like, uh, commentators and, and activists uh, and militants in France, which is like, well, the union leadership is holding us back. Very similar conversation to the United States. Without the union leadership, you know, we'd be able to actually take this other step and blah, 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 blah. But then as like the Jacobin article points out, it's like actually there is a huge void of organization with the exception of these like right. inter-syndicate uh, union coalition bodies that exist. And without that, oh, people argue that all of a sudden there'll just be like a massive upsurge if people aren't being held back by the unions. But then they look at, they show like ununionized workplaces and industries are not even being mobilized at all. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, and so like as as annoying as it is to see some of this rhetoric about the CGT being like, oh, look at this, the CGT leader has a mustache and they're <laughs> like, they're really communist. Like, yeah, like the CGT hasn't had a, a class versus class line for about uh, 60 years. So, yeah. uh, but at the same time, like um, the the point that's made in the Jacobin article is good. And I I think that the, all all of the articles basically agree on the same path forward, which is like the unions have to transform in some way to the left or to being more combative, which might be underway. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the other end, like there has to be a conception that what we're looking to do, what needs to be done doesn't appear to be possible. Like it's not within the range of possibilities. Mm -hmm. And importantly, when it comes to the pension reforms, what needs to be done is Bernard Arnault has to be taxed and his taxes pay pensions. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to happen. So what this whole thing is about is like, France has a pension system where current workers pay the pensions of pensioners. And since the current workforce is becoming more and more precarious, they're just not able to raise enough funds to pay for their elders. And uh, the obvious solution to that is tax the rich, but that's not going to happen because there'll be capital flight. So the only realistic thing is neoliberal austerity is making people work harder and retire later which you know goes to show that for all of the aesthetics of struggle and fight back um for all the lovely uh very beautiful class struggle driven um rhetoric uh coming out of you know the the combative industrial trade unions of france um, the moments where people bring flares into the BlackRock lobby and fill it with smoke and like go directly confront finance capital, uh, barricades in the street and all that. For all that, it seems as though at the end of the day, France is stuck where we're stuck, <laughs> where you know Great Britain is stuck, where Germany is stuck, where Mexico is stuck, where Chile is stuck, where Bakhmut is stuck. Where at, no, that's a little different. No, that's that's quite different. It's a different sticking point right there. But you know what I mean, right? Like everywhere, and this is maybe a way to tie it into the larger sort of things that we've seen over the last 15 years. Everywhere, it seems like these struggles, these like sequences and cycles of struggle are reaching towards something. They're reaching and they're... They're reaching towards something greater than what is possible, and they're reaching very severe limits, political limits. Right. In the case of a place like France, when you talked about the fact that there's a funding issue and it's a labor force issue and it's an issue of more and more people 
um, finding work outside of the like contractual agreements, you know, put together by the state in order to have like a decent social democratic economy, you're reaching like the real limits of what's possible in this particular era in this particular epoch. And so you're right. Like all that is possible at the end of the day is to like have those technocratic neoliberal reforms, even though neoliberalism is dying. Yeah. If, if Melanchthon was elected, he would probably do the same thing. He would be forced to do it maybe in another way, right. maybe like a kinder, gentler way to do it. He'd, he'd say, we'll put taxes up, you know, 5% on the Gerard Depardieu's of the world. And pretty soon, you know, they'd be flying off to the United States and they'd be doing the Mick Jagger from the 1960s when he got citizenship in the United States to ditch the taxes over there. You know, it's, and then the question that we return to always then is like, how do we break out of this? How do you break out of that barrier? How do you do what, uh, Ultimately, I, the theory communist calls the glass floor. Right. Into the how do you break the glass floor and into that's the abode of production? Exci- right. That's why people are excited about this because it, it looks like the sort of populist thing became a class movement in this moment, mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't seem to me that that has pushed this struggle much farther than yellow vests. But at the same time, I think every moment of these struggles, you know, uh, it transforms the people that participate it. And if, if new groups of people are participating and seeing the violence of the police, seeing the uselessness of politicians, um, there has to be, uh, you know, lessons learned. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes those lessons learned are don't try mm-hmm. uh, or like it, there's no, like you're going to get your eye blown out if you if you try to fight the police. Um, so that's like the risk of it. But, you know, that's that is the reality. So, yeah, it's, it's always a. It's always a positive development when you get uh, millions of people in the streets. For sure. And and then the question which we always ask ourselves is when does that large mass of people, you know, outlined in these articles, which seems to be a very real one, which has abstract support for what's happening in the streets, abstract support for the unions, um, you know, going on strike, um, more than abstract, like revulsion at what uh, Macron and the state is doing, but remain passive. You know, at what point do those people, are those people unable or unwilling to remain passive anymore? And what does it look like in that instance? And that's, I think, a huge question, right? It's like, uh, when do the masses enter? Or do they? Do the masses enter? Uh, Well, you sent me another article that, uh, a little bit hard to tell from the headline, but I think the masses are sort of lurking (laughs) in the story. The headline is, How AI and DNA are Unlocking the Mysteries of Global Supply Chains. When I saw that headline, I was like, Mysteries of Global Supply Chains. This is an article for me. Yeah. (laughs) I clicked on it very, very (laughs) excited. Um, I like to ponder the the esoteric mysteries of production. And yeah, they, they talk about that uh, AI and DNA for about three paragraphs yeah. <laughs> before. Okay, so it's about uh, there's they have some sort of DNA barcode thing. Mm-hmm. Cotton producers are, are putting on their yarn so that um, Costco stores in the United States can verify that they're not using cotton or processed in Xinjiang yeah. with forced labor. Right. And so the rest of the article is about manufacturers and merchants are using innovative methods to track the supply chain that has got become so opaque. Right. Right. But then like most of the article is about forced labor. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and like w- not talked too much about like what, you know, how forced labor is defined. Yeah. No, it's um, well, because once you get into that definition uh, then, and you're the New York times then you have to start seriously thinking about forced labor, coerced labor, I mean, how really forced is most labor? I mean, you talk about prison labor in the United States. You start talking about domestic labor everywhere. Once you get into the question, which the U.S. State Department has no problem with, right? Like there is uh, repression happening among the Uyghur minority in Western China. And the Congress has passed all sorts of laws that said we're not going to trade in goods that pass through that shit. So for the U.S. State Department and for trade officials in the U.S., uh, it is like a very clear cut case of this is the bad um, coerced labor that's happening and we're not going to fuck with that. The AI and DNA stuff is fascinating because it's like three paragraphs, but it's enough to create like an entire sci fi short story out of. Oh, sure. You know, like this idea that. You have a you spray a fine mist of like 
a bespoke coded uh, DNA and it actually acts as a barcode. And then you have somebody across the world running a, a swab across it and like testing to see if like where it's actually from is a pretty fascinating technology, like a technological achievement. What I think is maybe the most interesting for me is we always talk about capital as like a thing. And we talk about, um, say, Johnson & Johnson, which is mentioned in this article as like a monolithic corporation. Uh, we think of the products that we get, like, say, our Colgate toothpaste. I don't know if that's Johnson & Johnson or Procter & Gamble. There's only like a few of them. Um, you know, when we get that, we figure like someplace somewhere in the United States or maybe in East Asia, put this whole tube of toothpaste together and it like landed on our door with maybe like a retailer in the way. What uh, you find in this article is that, in fact, uh, not only is it far more complicated, complex and opaque to us where the things that we consume come from. It's even opaque to the capitalists themselves. I think there's a stat in there that says something like 45% of corporations says they say they don't know who all their intermediate suppliers mm -hmm. of like various different intermediate goods in their production process are. Yeah, let Fascinating. Me, let me read a, yeah. a quote that uh, does a really bad job explaining this. Oh, please. Uh, this is from James McGregor, chairman of the Greater China Region for APCO Worldwide, an advisory firm. Supply chains are like a bowl of spaghetti. They get mixed all over. You don't know where that stuff comes from. <laughs> they couldn't have found a better metaphor for supply chains. Yeah, just a big a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> well, yeah, so one, one other thing I want to add about the mist part, which is, again, yeah. not a big part of this article, is that there are mist robbers who are like uh, robbing the DNA so that they can, like, get into banks or shit like that <laughs> so that's like part of the fun sci-fi yeah, yeah, yeah. i stand the mist robbers and even the mist itself is fine yeah but yeah what bothered me was like okay so we're we're trying like what's the point of this it's to make supply chains more ethical i guess mm. by only having cotton grown in like the angola prison of <laughs> uh of louisiana where <laughs> yeah. which is you know like the the definition of forced labor here is that uh, China, you know, detained and re-educated millions of Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, and these, so they, they're not uh, detained right now um, for re-education or terror, pre terrorism, pre-crime or whatever. Mm -hmm. They've been released. And a hundred, about 100,000 of them were released into conditions of forced labor where they're like at the same um, factories as Han Chinese workers, but mm -hmm. they're kept separately and have less rights. Mm. And so that's the condition of forced labor that that we're spraying in the mist to prevent mm. supporting. Um, meanwhile, if you're a prisoner in the United States in like Angola prison or, you know, any other prison where there's, uh, you know, mass industry of some kind, mm. including I think Angola grows cotton, mm. um, a high percentage of people who work in those industries say like, if I don't, if I don't pick cotton at, at my prison job, I will be punished. Mm -hmm. That's forced labor. That's forced labor. But since you've been convicted of a crime and you don't have your 13th Amendment rights, mm -hmm. it's not by this definition, which yeah. is insane. So I don't think this has anything to do with like an ethical supply chain. It does, though, in a weird way that you didn't think about. Uh -huh. There's that little uh, piece in the article about how uh, good consumers in the West who are able to afford... What's the most expensive sheets? I don't know. How much could you spend on sheets? $1,000? Uh-huh. I don't know. I'm just making that, that up. That sounds there, about right. I'm yeah. sure you could spend $1,000 on like 50,000 thread count From Bernard or nose sheets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or give on she sheets or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it, consumers in the West who want the best quality, they want the Egyptian quality sheets, found out that those 500 thread count sheets they had with Egyptian cotton were being made somewhere else. They were not the good cotton. Mm. So you have bilked the good consumer, the oh, okay, person okay. who the the person who works hard day in and day out making Excel spreadsheets and sending <laughs> emails from home and podcasting. Oh, well, we don't make that kind of money. No, not yet. We're going to get there once the revolution in France pops up. <laughs> uh, no, so... Uh, Melon Sean will fund the podcast. <laughs> Inshallah. Nice. Okay, I support Melon Sean yeah, now. If God wills it. In Sume, France. In Sume. We are unkneeled. Yeah. Is that what it means? France unkneeled? Stop kneeling. <laughs> get off your feet. Um, yeah, no. So really, like... 
Why, why does the article being written, who knows why a publisher, they probably thought like, DNA missed, cool. This sounds wonky and like a fun little piece to give to our readership. But really like the implication is that if you're spending $1,000 on your uh, Givenchy sheets, you want to know that it's the good cotton. Mm. You don't want it from like that lousy West China cotton. You don't want it from Angola prison cotton. You want to be sure that you're spending your good consumption uh, wages on on something like that. So you're saying at, at this point, ethics and consumption have become indistinguishable in the pages of the New York Times, uh-huh. sure, right? And no, I, mean, I think that's true, though. Yeah. Like, you know, w- what are the big like ethical consumer moments of the last thirty years? Like, uh, boycotting tuna, dolphin safe tuna, Nestle, veganism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that kind of thing. It's it's like we're gonna we're gonna consume something different. Um, if if you don't get your act together, yeah. What uh, go woke, go broke, right, right? Right. That's what the right wing is doing right now because Bud Light had like a rainbow can like a year and a half ago, and now they're trying. <laughs> yeah. Travis Tritt refuses to have it on his rider anymore. Like there was uh, a, a week or so ago, um, there was a really interesting. I got a zinger off on it on Twitter, but there was like uh, a video showing African West African cobalt miners, right, and they're there getting the um the rare earth materials necessary in order to do the green revolution you know to freely do green right tech. You know, for fun freely they, they dreamed of doing that they, as a child they wanted to contribute to the uh the green new deal right so now you know the video when you see it is like these horrendous fucking conditions are they worse than What's happening in Western China right now with the Muslim minority? I don't know. You can ask yourself. You can look at the video. You can put it in the fucking show notes. looks deplorable. There's like mudslides falling on top of these workers. There's like young kids. They got shovels. They're like digging by hand. And this fucking stupid ass statue avatar right wing account is like, this is where, this is what the globalist, this is what BlackRock wants. And look at how they're exploiting these workers. This is where your green technology comes from. And it's like... What a fucking cheap shot. So all of a sudden now, because these are cobalt miners and not like oil rig workers who had their passports taken away in like in, in Qatar, you know, these guys who were basically slaves from Pakistan working in the oil industry, because it's now about cobalt miners in Africa, all of a sudden now you're worried about the fucking supply chain. You're worried about the conditions of workers in Africa trying to get this cobalt. You're not. It's a cheap fucking trick. It's a cheap fucking ploy. But like workers and their conditions and their rights will be brought out whether it's by like the right wing when it comes to attacking one particular element of capitalist production that they don't particularly like because they're invested in extractive industries and automobiles and all that bullshit or whether it's the u.s state department who says that what china has done to their muslim population because america always respects muslim populations but what the chinese do to their muslim minority out in the west there that constitutes a line that we cannot cross. So we're going to create an entire pet industry now where some fucking inventors slash parasites there can fucking create a a fine mist that we can spray over everything to make sure that the New York Times readership gets their Egyptian cotton instead of the other shit. It's all a fucking game. It's all Mm -hmm. a fucking sham. It's like everyone's being fucking played. We're all being fucking played. But an article like this is fascinating because it shows... And this is like like a profound thing. I find it profound. I don't know if it actually is profound. But it shows like at the heart of everyday life, you could call it, or I guess like the material community of capital, you could call it. Like at the heart of the way that we produce and reproduce ourselves at the world in the world, there's like this opaque network effect. There's all these sorts of like little independent nodes of production. That when everything works right, they all work in tandem. There's like the flows of information with pricing signals. There's the movements of goods through shipping containers, you know, from one continent to another. An intermediary good goes to the United States, and then it takes something and it moves it back to China where it's assembled. And then it goes to fucking Africa, and then it comes back and lands on your doorstep, you know, magically or whatever. All this stuff seems to happen. Um, All these sinews seem to connect flawlessly um, but we saw over the last couple of years how delicate they actually are. Yeah. And you have that delicacy, which we, delicateness, not delicacy. Well, it's a <laughs> bowl we, of spaghetti, which is It's a, a bowl of spaghetti. You yeah. have this delicacy of like the carbonara. It's an Italian delicacy. <laughs> you have the bolognese of the world economy and everything's working good. And then all of a sudden somebody drops a little eggshell 
in, you know, when they're finishing the carbonara, you know, right. you got to get that good yolkiness in there. They drop an eggshell in That's it. what binds all the sinews of supply lines together. That's right. And then right. all of a sudden you realize, like, hey, this carbonara might not be mm-hmm. here tomorrow. In fact, this carbonara is so complicated, this pasta dish is so complicated that even the chef doesn't even know how the bowl got here. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then you're thinking to yourself, and I've been talking with Varn a lot, obviously, because we have like we've been doing these little projects together. And he talks a lot about complexity theory, you know, and people like Tainter, uh, who are dealing with this in like a grand sort of like statistical, historical, deep sense of like when societies get really complex, you know, they often reach a point where that complexity becomes too onerous to actually continue and go on. And when I look at the opacity of this, that even capital itself doesn't know how the pasta is made, so to speak, it's a really fascinating and scary sort of like thing to think about, right? Mm-hmm. Like even Procter and Gamble doesn't know who all the people are that make their stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's and then and then the and that's co- and that's like an, an argument for the AI because people don't need to know. We don't need like uh, the, the like the two living people who know the recipe for Coca Cola anymore. Um, just the supply chain is understood by AIs, which is probably like the only thing possible that could understand yeah. the supply the supply line and uh, supply line in like a functional sense. Um, but we don't want that kind of like rationalized uh, uh, bowl of spaghetti. What we yeah. want is more like a cosmic gumbo, <laughs> where all of the flavors you know blend together yeah. and mix into something greater than the sum of its we parts. We want like a conscious jambalaya. Yeah, we want like a planned pasta, uh-huh. but that somehow has its own sort of self-propelling possibilities to it. Because like obviously, when you look at this opacity. If you're like a communist or an anarchist or whatever, uh, if you like seriously consider that the human future has to be some sort of abolition of the anarchy of production through markets or whatever, then like the planning question really rises, you know, raises its head all of a sudden. Like it. So if things are so complex that even the ruling class, you know, which in that France article, what was it like the incompetence of the bourgeoisie has become a material force in history. If like the cluelessness of capital of the bourgeoisie and even understanding how the products that they make grudgingly, the commodities that they make come together, like what does that mean for us? Like the idea that humanity would take production up into its hands and consciously plan it like starts to become, well, maybe things are so complex and opaque right now and a radical simplification would have to be through communism. Like you couldn't have that simplification without barbarism, you know, unless you had communism. So we need something more like a po' boy than a gumbo or jambalaya. You need, um, you need at least like you fight for cosmic jambalaya, Uh right? You have to get everybody together and you say, folks, it's a tasty stew. All right. It's like, it's sensuous, but it also fulfills all sorts of needs. It's about the unity and the pairing of all the particular ingredients into the universal. But what you actually end up having is probably like a really tasty bisque. Um, that's like the kind you would get at one of those old, uh, one of those diners where like you just opened up the slot and it came out. You an know, automat. An automat. So yeah. we're gonna get bisque from an automat. That's the that's the compromise. Bisque. Yeah. You want cosmic jambalaya, but we can settle for bisque from an automat. Um. All right. Just try, try to <laughs> try to return to what we were talking about. Like more of a, there's forced labor all over the world. They're being instrumentalized, uh, obviously for their labor, uh, mm-hmm. but also um, as like this sort of threat held up. By like the U.S. State Department saying like, look at China. Yeah, it's worse over there because of all this forced labor. China and Russia do the same thing. Like, look at the U.S. prison system. It's you know, U.S. is tyrannical. Both sides are pulling uh, massive resources from forced labor and like heavily, heavily exploited labor from the global south. Mm-hmm. So the reality is, the tendency in the world is the centralization of wealth. And consumption power in a very small amount of people who are mm. buying luxury goods and moving towards a a forced labor situation mm. amongst the global working class. Yeah. And what links these two elements are these supply lines. Yeah. No, no, because it's, so it's a crucial question. It is, and it's not even just like a blanket immiseration. If like 
you can crib Trotsky for a second. It's like combined and uneven immiseration, right? Right. Because you have the immiseration of like the French uh, working classes all of a sudden being forced to work two more years, two years of fucking life more that you have to work in order to like get the promise of retirement for five or ten years at the end of your life. Oh, you don't Huge. like you don't like working? I thought you thought being a worker was cool. No, I being a worker so cool. Why would you want to work for last years? <laughs> Yeah, like I'm it's the guy who's like a French leftist worker as to our argues for the pension reform because work is cool. <laughs> well, I mean, there's been a handful of like blue check journalists like Thomas Charidon Williams who oh. who will say like, well, two years more is good. I mean, working oh, is I good. Like that, sometimes yeah. people die when they don't work. Yeah. But, yeah. but there's like a handful of people just like fundamentally have not considered why people want to retire fundamentally i've never worked at a job where they thought maybe hmm a couple of years left of this at the end of my life would yeah. be good thomas chatterton wilson is not uh let's just be honest he's never worked like an honest day in his entire life well, he none of up, these dipshit pundits really have he ended up apologizing for the because he was getting so roasted he was like you know what twitter you guys are being really mean but like you're right i didn't really consider that uh manual labor is different from what i do <laughs> i didn't like, consider if you don't consider that then just don't talk about where these does things. your fucking food come from you asshole where yeah. does the fucking car that you drive come from where does like where does anything come from you stupid shit like these are the fucking people that are supposed to be telling us how the world works but and... this is but this is like fundamentally this dna problem is like yeah. you have to manufacture some dna to like put into the process because the visibility of like all of our servants who exist everywhere in the world has been totally erased from us that to the point where of course we can't see the slaves in China yeah. we can't see the slaves here exactly we don't even see the person who brings the cotton sheets in the box to our door is that really what these motherfuckers want to do you want to use your DNA shit to make sure that we can do our ethical or our um, luxury consumption so we know where the good cotton and whether it comes from the good cotton or not. I'm interested in this shit because I want to know where all the intermediate shit is because we need to start fucking like counter counter supply lining counter supply chaining everything and it would be helpful for communists to understand what all the intermediate products are that go into the fucking jambalaya that go into the carbonara mm -hmm. you know what i mean and like there's the actual forced labor of like a hundred thousand people in west china and i think like getting into that i think you did the right thing which is to point at like the hypocrisy in the way that this is being used as part of a larger like cold war point two narrative 2.0 narrative uh, pushed by the United States, it's scared by the rise of China. It's like a disingenuous um, critique and disingenuous policy uh, that's happening over there. But in a larger sense, like as you have combined an uneven immiseration, you know, of course you have a lot fall in a fall, fall from France than you do with Senegal, right? Pro largely because of the. <laughs> Uh, malign influence that France has had upon Senegal over the last hundred and something years or so. But that notwithstanding, there is this sort of global race to the bottom um, where the the fact that like a Western Chinese Muslim worker actually has like a factory job, you know, like actually probably takes wages home and could do that. Um, like how how much how much of the labor that happens around the world is not formally coerced, but is just simply informally coerced. You know, if you want to bring coercion into the whole thing, you want to use bring force into the entire thing, is not like an African or a Vietnamese, maybe not Vietnamese is a bad example, an African or a South American miner. You know, are these people truly free in their work, truly free in their labor? Is this the door that you want to open up? We'll start talking about the freedom. We'll talk about the liberty of labor. We'll talk about the opacity of supply chains. We'll talk about tariffs and all that stuff. Let's have this fucking conversation, but let's not have it on the terms that the New York Times wants to have them on. Right. Let's have them on our own terms. Yeah, that's the challenge of, like, trying to just avoid the rhetorical traps that... Yeah. Uh... But, yeah, there's the rhetorical traps, and then there's the tactical traps, and... Um... You know, I don't think we've we figured out how to break out of the new left model of, of, of struggle yet. Um, and uh, maybe AI will do it for us. Maybe AI will do it. Chat GPT. What is class struggle? <laughs> how, how to class struggle. <laughs> how to uh, off haven the new left. I'm doing it right now. Yeah, hold let's on. do it. All right. Hold on. Hold on, folks at home. I'm going I'm to open up my chat GPT. Have you fucked around with this thing any, at all? No. 
I did a little bit. I said Molly Crabapple said I shouldn't, so I I haven't. I opened it up once, um, and I and I said, uh, Chat GPT, write an episode of the Antifada, <laughs> and it was like. Hello, I'm your host, Sean KB, and it was like, and I'm AP Andy, and we're here to talk about the intersection of politics and radical struggle That's throughout the world. What message should we send to chat? How, to, how, how can, how can we struggle over- overcome the impasses of the new left? Yes. Okay. How can contemporary struggles... Should we have the answer on the other side of the paywall? Yeah. All right, so if you want to hear what ChatGPT says, <laughs> um, become a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada. We're also going to be talking about Sean's deep dive into the leaked documents. Ah, the leaked, leaked documents. We yeah. got documents. He's poured over thousands of documents, and he's found some interesting things that yeah. I, I don't know about. So we'll talk about I, that. I'll be presenting my research on that with Matt Taibbi. The <laughs> two of us have a great, exciting project coming up in Barry Weiss's newsletter. So go to and... substack.com slash the anti- <laughs> no, patreon.com slash the Antifada. Sign up for $5 a month or for the full year for a discount and DM me for a postcard. You know the deal, but please do it. So, yeah. so uh, just in case Mel and Sean doesn't win, <laughs> we uh, still do the show. Yeah, we'll see you on the other side with ChatGPT. How can contemporary class struggles overcome the impasses of the new left? See you there. François, boum boum Julie et Bruno Jeannette et Jeannot et puis des